If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So we're, in a, we're, we're in, a, in a place here about looking at place. And this is, in a sense, part of a loose, completely unofficially um, unaffiliated series of events here at the London Review Bookshop over the autumn, which have included uh, last week uh, Ian Sinclair's book American Smoke, of course, renowned writer of place, but also about 10 days earlier than that, uh, a look at Ian Nairn's legacy uh, with Gillian Darley, David Mackey and Owen Hadley. Again, a keen sense of, of what English place is has been and can be. And so it's great to now be looking uh, at the landscape uh, of England and, and considering what particular qualities it has now, um, how that has radically changed from previous um, considerations of what landscape has been, um, and where we might be going in terms of our relationship with this very, very different uh, sense of territory. Um, we'll come on to many of these questions later. I look forward, of course, to hearing from you about your own sense of these, of these issues and considerations. But it gives me great pleasure now to welcome Ken, who will give us a presentation drawn from the book. Um, great pleasure, of course, to show also the images from Jason Orton, the photographer and absolutely key collaborator with Ken on this book. Very sadly, Jason can't be with us tonight, but of course his images are very much present. And so uh, I look forward to seeing them now with you. And do please welcome Ken. Thank you. I'd like to thank Gareth very much because in the last few years, Gareth, through his editorship of the, another book that's on sale here tonight, uh, towards reenchantment, place and its meanings, has been very instrumental in bringing a lot of writers and artists and photographers around the country and beyond uh, around <coughs> this issue of place and its meanings. Um, and, but I'm particularly indebted, of course, to Jason Alton, who I've now been working with for 10 years. And for those budding writers here tonight, uh, I can tell you a salutary story that uh, I've been wanting to write about Essex, which is my home county, as it were, for many years, and I'd accumulated something like six box files. I had a number of rejections from publishers because I wanted to write about some kind of essential Essex in terms of its cultural identity, and all they wanted was a story about Essex man, Essex woman, and, uh, you know, stiletto heels and stonewashed denim and kind of lots of drink and clubbing and I couldn't do that so I had all, all this work and then in 2005 which was the year of the coast Jason Orton was commissioned by Essex County Council to do a photographic essay <coughs> of the coast and he asked me if I would just provide a short accompanying essay now the photographs had already been taken and that was one thing I quickly learned that actually one way the only way I think which a writer can, a photographer can work together, is they have to be independent of each other. So they have to talk a lot, walk a lot, but on 
the key things, they have to be two very separate things. And oh, in that year, I walked a lot with Jason, and I think it's very, very interesting that he never took a photograph in my company. Never. He'd always say something like, he'd bring his camera, but he never uh, took it out of the bag. He'd always say, oh, that's interesting, I'll come back to that. Because he only he knew when was the right time, not only of the time of the year, but the light, morning or evening, what would be suitable, where would the sun be, and so, so on. So it's a very different thing from writing. And actually, that liberated me. Having had about 100,000 words in kind of in draft, to be asked to provide 5,000 words was a complete liberation. It was more enjoyable to get <coughs> that 5,000 words in kind of crystal clear order than it had been to sort out this other stuff. And it does remind me of a saying that I heard recently that someone said, you can write the biography of a life in three volumes, or you can write it in a sentence. And sometimes a single sentence tells you more. So this, this book is actually a very, uh, it's an 18,000 word essay. But I think it is about trying to pull together some essential themes. And working with a photographer allows you not to get too discursive and all over the place. You have to be very focused. Uh, so I'm enormously indebted to Jason, and since then we've worked on a number of projects together, and this one is the most recent, of course. Uh, both Jason and I are fascinated by Essex uh, and East Anglia in general, and in a way the opening theme of the book is how, in post-war Britain, what was considered the essentialist, if you like, English landscape moved from the heart or from the Cotswolds from the Upper Thames, from Oxford and so on, to East Anglia. And partly this was a result of the war in that the East Anglian coast became very fortified. Artists began to feel that they needed a new kind of palette, a different colour palette, not dark green anymore. In fact, uh, in, in the letters of Edward Borden and Eric Revillius, uh, Revillius quotes Borden as saying, oh, no, quotes Borden, uh, sort of says about Borden that he loathed the approach of spring when everything would turn green. And actually those two artists luxuriated in the pale pastels, the ochres of autumn and winter rather than luxuriant colours of green. And, and artists, I think, like Prunella Clough, during and immediately after the war, saw in the beaches... The, the, war, um, the war remains, the remains of the pillboxes and the tank traps on the beach, the broken boats and so <coughs> on. They saw a way of thinking about landscape that actually was beginning to see landscape as not as essential, essentialist as it were, that you could actually catch the heart of it, but as a series of fragments that, if you put them together right, would actually evoke layers of meaning rather than a, a direct meaning itself. And I think in that sense that, and since then, because of the focus on Essex, not simply by Ian Sinclair, but a number of people, Jonathan Meads and so on, Essex is now seen, as it were, as a kind of the, fil the force field of Englishness, cultural, uh, spiritual, topographical, and so on. It was an early uh, place for post-industrialisation, uh, and as I'll say in a minute, uh, well, in fact, I'll say now, the traumatic event um, of the floods of 1953 
was a reminder, in a way, of how East Anglia, but particularly Essex, had become the vulnerable, the soft tissue of Englishness itself. So it kind of occupied this, both this fortified place, but also one very vulnerable. Now, actually, I grew up on Canvey Island, and uh, our family left a year before the floods in 1953. Um, and we certainly have um, had a very bad time of it because we lived quite close to the seawall, below sea level, uh, in a wooden bungalow on stilts, uh, one of those plot land bungalows, but we did move away. But, for, but if you look, all the blue pieces are the, the areas of land that were completely submerged. Whole islands, Canvey Island, completely submerged. Falness Island, completely submerged. And when you look at Essex, if you forget Billy Bragg, forget um, others like that who concentrate on the A13, the A127 and so on, Essex is largely fantastic county of rivers and estuaries and a very extensive 350 miles of sea coast. It's a, a county very much in touch with the sea and I'm sure Rachel will talk about that quite shortly. But it has, as I say, become this kind of false field. Um, more recently, artists like Jock McFadden have focused on the Thames estuary. But I think as importantly, the work of W.J. Sable has been very important in, apart from mentioning how bad Liverpool Street Station is, if you look at a, no, a, a novel like Austerlitz, you'll see that he is trying to weave England back into the story of some of the dark spaces and times of Europe as well. And again, I think that East Anglian coast has been very important in bringing that connection back to Europe. Uh, when I was growing up on Canvey Island, actually at carnival time every year, we all had to dress uh, as Dutch children. And if you look at the Falness Island, until the First World War, all the men and women on Falness actually wore Dutch clothes, Dutch costumes. Um, there was a very strong connection there. Um, now, Gareth's work, the work of people like Sinclair, has drawn attention back to this issue of what, why landscape is important. And in 2003, uh, the European Union uh, drew up a charter on landscape, and it said uh, that landscape was one of the most important sources of people's identity, and that it was a government, it was a kind of responsibility of member states to respect people's appreciation of la landscape and to cultivate it and not simply rough develop roughshod over the places that were so meaningful to, to people. So I've always believed that, of course. Nevertheless, one year later, um, the journal Country Life uh, had a whole edition devoted to the qualities of the English counties, and it uh, tabulated them all and put them into boxes, a series of six kind of columns for economy, heritage value, uh, agricultural so, so, uh, things and so on. But it had one column for landscape and it gave Essex no marks out of ten for landscape quality. And this kind of riled me somewhat because I think it does show that there's now quite a battle going on over what we mean when we say that this is beautiful or this is meaningful. Um, at the Shorelines conference two weeks ago that uh, Rachel curated a 
a young German came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, it's very interesting, I love being English. He said, I know when I've got to the countryside when I see a pylon. Um, <laughs> and he kind of had that, beginning of that understanding that we are in a different world now, that these kind of, it's the juxtaposition of the industrial, the technological with the rural and the Arcadian that is actually producing new landscapes that we need to think about in Europe. Um, I'm going to shortly finish by saying that the, the interest in landscape, I think, is fantastic. Um, in the Essex Books Festival about four years ago, I did an event with Germaine Greer and Simon Heffer and the poet Martin Newell. Um, and it was in Chelmsford, in the, and they had a thousand applications for tickets, and they had to stop at 500 in the Baptist Hall. But, I mean, the, the demand, if you, you know, if you talk to the University of the Third Age, any event you do in Essex, I mean, people are just so interested. They want to talk about where they live, how they can understand it. So there's that. More recently, um, Gareth has organised a series of annual events at Snape simply on the theme of place and its meanings. And again, they've been tremendously important in bringing artists and writers and people living in East Anglia together to talk about moving forward in, in this discussion about what it means to inhabit and how one can kind of make more meaning out of the places we live in. And lastly, Rachel's curatorship of two, uh, <coughs> no, three actual now, a biannual Shorelines Festival at Leon Sea. Tremendous events, bringing lots of people from the Thames and the coast, working in those industries and so on. So there's this tremendous appetite. And I, so I, therefore I think the debate about what this English, about the English landscape is really really now up for grabs. And I think what we've tried to do in this book, Jason and I, is that say if you can look at Essex, you can begin to understand where all the pieces are in the jigsaw, even if at the moment we don't know how they all fit together. Thank you. Many thanks indeed, Ken. That's great. And thank you for the kind words. I'm very pleased to say that we have uh, reproduced, uh, reprinted uh, the, the uh, book Towards Reenchantment. I'm very pleased that my co-editor, Di Robson, is here in the audience as well tonight. And um, I think it was interesting to see the response to that book. Um, a key essay in that was by Ken and has led uh, partly to the essay that uh, we're now talking about with the New English Landscape. But it's, it's crucial, I think, that this idea of collaboration is how various versions of place are investigated. And Rachel, as Ken has said, has been absolutely central to uh, thinking about how the estuarine culture is represented through the Shorelines Festival. Um, Ken, I'm going to ask you, if I could, at your, at your own speed, to, to take us through those images during the evening. Is yeah, that all right? Sure, because sure, yeah. that would be lovely. Um, but Rachel, do please um, take us into the estuary, if you, if you would like to. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, yes, again, I completely agree with uh, Ken here uh, how uh, key this book, The Reenchantment, um, has been in my, my way of thinking about place and the place where I live. I am an Essex girl, born and bred in Southend. Um, couldn't wait to leave at the age of 18. Uh, moved to London and became you know, known very much as an, as an urban historian of place. I moved back to Essex about 10 years ago and slowly through walking my dog mainly at places like Two Tree Island and Hadley Castle and along the, uh, along the coastline there fell back in love um, with the estuarine, estuarine landscape. But like most 
Southenders, most people who live along that coastline. I'd never really uh, been on the water. I might have dipped a toe in it. Um, I certainly walked out on the mud when the tide went out as a child, but I never really spent any time on the river itself. It was just this kind of beautiful backdrop to my life, and I think that's how many people think about it who, who live there today. And then in 2011, I was invited to partake in a very interesting artist-led uh, residency on an old Dutch barge by the curator and artist Ben Eastop, who really wanted to explore um, that particular landscape in a very immersive way. So he invited me as a writer. There were artists, musicians, an archaeologist, um, and a filmmaker. And we spent five days on board the Dutch barge, just going up and down the estuary. And it was a, it was a revelation to me to actually be on the water and think about that space as a landscape in its, in its own right. And I also became increasingly curious about the people that work on the river. I mean, sometimes it looks very empty. You see a few tankers going past and the sailors on the many yacht cups uh, nearby. And then I started another artist-led project uh, a couple of years ago. And I became very interested in the working lives of the people who'd, who'd spent their lives on the estuary. And I'm just going to read... So I'm now writing a book um, for Hamish Hamilton exploring the Thames estuary and very much focusing on uh, those working lives, the kind of memories of these trades which are starting to slip out of uh, living memory, these unrecorded stories of these extraordinary group of people who've worked on the river. So this is a story about Keith Toms, the tugman from Gravesend. Through someone I know working the barges in Morden, I was put in touch with a retired river tugman from Gravesend called Keith Toms. After speaking on the phone, he invited me to come and meet him on board the MT Kent, a historic tugboat moored in Chatham Basin, where Keith spends most of his free time. I drove down to Chatham shortly after, eventually finding the tug moored up opposite the Ship and Trades pub near the historic dockyard. The first thing that struck me was the size of the vessel. The Kent is nearly 82 feet long and 22 feet wide. She's recently been immaculately restored. Her brass instruments shone in the sunlight, her hull glistened deep red in the brackish waters of the Chatham Basin, and on deck were a number of elderly men in jeans and sweatshirts, polishing and cleaning various parts of the boat. I stood on the quayside and asked for Keith, and a few moments later, a tall, broad-shouldered man who I imagined to be in his late 60s, emerged from the bowels of the boat and invited me on board. Most of the crew were retired tugmen or rivermen like Keith. A few were just keen enthusiasts, but they were all proud members of the Southeastern Tug Society. We once had nearly 90 members, said Keith, but because of the age profile, we've obviously lost a lot of people. But we still jog along, and the restoration of the Kent is our biggest achievement. Collectively, we've spent over 200,000 man-hours working on the vessel over the past 18 years, mainly on Saturdays and Tuesdays. They were all keen to tell me stories. 
I learnt that when the Kent was launched in 1948, she was the most powerful diesel propulsion single crew harbour tug in Great Britain. She began her working life on the Medway, berthing ships in Sheerness and the port of Rochester, and when the BP refinery opened on the Isle of Grain, she assisted the first British tanker into the berth. When the industry contracted in the 1980s, the Kent was taken out of service and moored up in Chatham Dockyard, where she remained, in a poor state of repair, slowly deteriorating, until 1995, when the South Eastern Tug Society purchased her for the sum of one pound from owners J.P. Knight, under the condition that they would preserve and restore her. She's now the oldest working tug on the river, said Keith, and she's been involved in many special maritime events, including the Queen's Diamond Jubilee pageant, and most recently, Richard Wilson's Ship's Opera, which began with the lone blast of the M.T. Kent out in the Thames estuary and ended in the Pool of London with hundreds of historic ships taking part. The musician, Jem Finer, was on board with us, playing horns from the deck. Tugs were traditionally built as powerful small units for assisting large ships into docks or onto berths. Now many modern ships have bow thrusters and stern thrusters. They don't necessarily need direct assistance from the tugs, but many still take a tug with them, just in case of mechanical failure. Tugs also assist big ships in restricted areas by manoeuvring the ships without them having to use their own propulsion. However, it's a dying industry. When Keith started on the river, there were over 30 ship-towing tugs. Now there are only six operating in the whole of the Thames estuary. For most of the 20th century, tugs were designed with the same hull shape, the same power and the same propulsion units. British polar slow-revving, long-stroke diesel engines. Major breakdowns in these types of vessels was rare, said Keith. Tugs like the Kent are extremely well-constructed, over-engineered even. This vessel is over 65 years old and still in good condition. Keen to share his own memories of a lifetime spent working on the river, he led me below deck into a small wood-panelled cabin where we sat and talked about his long association with the tugs of the Thames estuary. My father went afloat in 1926, the year of the general strike. He worked on the tugs all his life, as did his father before him and all of his brothers. Back then, all the river trades used to be family-orientated, watermen, dock pilots, tugmen, lightermen and bargemen. Most sons followed in their father's footsteps. I think it suited the employers at the time because they had a ready-made workforce that weren't starting from scratch. People had some idea of what they were getting into. They knew the good bits, they knew the bad bits, but they were prepared to go there. After leaving school in 1961 at the age of 15, Keith went straight into the industry as a boy. His duties were cleaning, shaking mats, making tea, scrubbing decks, cooking, and looking after all the needs of the nine men crew. If they wanted a beer, you had to go ashore and get bottles of beer for them. In the east end of London, I'd sometimes end up in rather unsavoury pubs that would frighten the life out of you now. But there were tough places then. The dock areas was a rough environment. It was a a 24-hour-a-day job, seven days a week. There was no shutdown. People worked hard, they lived hard, and conditions weren't good. Nobody was supplied with any work gear, and health and safety wasn't even heard of. After cooking and cleaning for a couple of years, he was promoted to junior deckhand. By the age of 17, he was working as the deckhand assisting the engineer, and that was when his apprenticeship really started. I learnt by what I saw, by other people's mistakes. It was a long process of learning. 
But the beauty of learning a job like that is when you get to be a skipper or the chief, you've done all the other jobs below that position. So if someone came to you with a story, I can't do that, skipper, that's not possible, or some other feeble excuse, you wouldn't immediately be able to see through it. So it was part of the slow structure, and it stood the test of time. He continued to work on the ship-towing tugs in Gravesend until 1974, when the Port of London started to reduce its activities. Whole tug groups were being made redundant, so Keith left and began working for the Port of London Authority, who at the time had quite an extensive fleet of their own vessels, the London Tugs. They were the major ship-towing company on the river at the time, purely engaged in towing the big ships into Tilbury Dock, King George V Docks and West India Docks. Keith loved the job. There was only five in a crew, and they were nice tugs. We had good conditions and a good pay and a good crowd of blokes, but the port was continually changing and reducing in size. So first of all, the West India docks shut, and what traffic was left went to the Royals. Then the Royal docks shut in 1982, which, of course, is now the site of the London airport. So when we lost the Royals and the West India dock, there was even more cuts in the tugs. I managed to hang on for a few more years until 1989, and there were more cutbacks. They reduced the crew numbers from four to three, so again I was in a situation where, because the industry I'd chosen was contracting, I had to look for another job. It was 1989, the year that the Marchioness was run down on the Thames, and the PLA decided to increase the cover of their patrol launches to include the area in central London. So that's where I worked, on a patrol boat on the Thames until I retired. I was 46 years employed on the river, but I've been messing about with boats since I was 10. I'm 67 now, and I'm still playing at it. My wife said, I never really went to work. I just went to a hobby that I loved and got paid for it. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. And I'm, I'm very glad that you, you kind of took on the Kent Coast in this way because yes. it reminds us very clearly that there's an estuary that has shaped this landscape fundamentally. As you mentioned, Kent, at the beginning of your presentation with this idea of the water meeting the land. And I guess in cultural terms, one of the key shifts in how we perceived that landscape was probably Conrad. Um, with the Heart of Darkness, of course, thinking about the colonial uh, channel that led from, from London out to the Empire and, and the, all the implications of that, which are probably fruit for another conversation. But I guess this brings me to the key question um, that, in a sense, you implied, Ken, at the beginning of the evening, which is why this discussion around the aesthetics and, of course, the social and economic implications of landscape are so undiscussed at the heart of the culture. I mean, this is a profoundly important uh, canvas. It's the largest canvas we inhabit it. It's the landscape. It's far Absolutely. more yeah. total than any, any gallery work, however beautiful and important. And why do you think this key discussion is not something that's, that's, that's really in, in the heart of contemporary debate? Um. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, the, 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 the Reith lectures can be given by Grace and Perry and nobody kind of, you know, blinks an eyelid. He's able to talk about what we think of as beautiful and what not and how this changes and, and what the aesthetics of the gallery and what, you know, problems arise when you put stuff in the gallery out into the public domain. And this is a conversation that is had by millions and they don't have a problem with it. But you show someone a photograph of a, 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 a cottage with a, a telegraph pole near it and there are certain magazines in, in Britain, even today, that would disallow that as a photograph. Their photo photographers are given strict instructions. You know, we want ivy, we want cottages, 
We don't want any, any sense that there's a 20th century in evidence there at all. And I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's not a peculiarly English problem, but if you go back to writers like Cobbett, uh, or even John Evelyn before him, people who toured Britain, talking, uh, seeing how villages worked, uh, they, were taught, they would talk to farmers, uh, they would talk to the trades and tradespeople, the craftsmen. They would try to understand the relationship between the big house and the, and the village and so on. They understood landscape as actually having an economy and landscape actually being completely intricated in an economic system. Then along, for better or worse, but probably for worse, came the kind of romantics and this notion that somehow the landscape was there as a visual only a, a thing on which you could project your emotions, whether of sadness, melancholy, or anger, hence the pathetic fantasy, so to speak. And the dominant, and, and, the, and, and that still is, I think, the dominant mode, that it's actually, landscape is visual, not economic. Of course, one of the early people in, well, I mean, a great hero of mine, of course, Raymond Williams, in the book, The Country and the City, makes this point quite clearly. He says, I don't want to talk about rural, I don't want to talk about urban as separate categories. I want to talk about the working countryside. I want to talk about a working landscape where you can see how the economy that underlies it. And obviously when Rachel's talking about the river, she's talking about how it works as a place of employment. And when Conrad's writing about the river, it's where the estuary works in bringing you know, the port of London into contact with Africa. Um, and I think we're only beginning to kind of realise that the, you know, the over-dominance of the visual is really, is, has created so many problems that most people now have turned away from it. But I think another interesting thing from public policy terms, because that's how I've earned my living, which is kind of looking at change in urban situations, is that up until 30 years ago, if you'd said to any local authority or developer or housing court, Corporation, or how do you want to locate next to a canal or an empty uh, docks? They say you must be joking, but actually, in the last 30 years, we've had a, what you might call a turn to the sea. People now want, I think, want to re establish a relationship to the water because, in a way, it's the last, it's the one thing capitalism can't control. Google can't control it, uh, you know, it's out there and it's this phenomenal force. And I think we're becoming, you know, it, magnetize, it magnetizes me because, and we know through, you know, climate change and so on, that uh, as we saw in the 1953 floods, it can be a totally uncontrollable and disastrous force. So I think, you know, the turn to the sea and the re-understanding <coughs> of the economic relationship is very important. I think also the interesting thing that's happened with Essex recently is these photographs show so clearly is a different appreciation of the kind of particular aesthetic of that landscape being now considered to be beautiful. Um, I, I, I really remember a moment actually at, at Snape when Robert McFarlane showed his extraordinary film, The Wild Places of Essex, which just shows this stunning landscape. And before he showed the film... And we were in Albra with a very particular audience, maybe. And he played, is it the Ian Jury song, Essex's Crap? 
um, yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I don't. I won't quote on the title, but it's yeah. pretty much like that. Yeah, it? and it goes Essex is crap, Essex is crap, and there was a great chortling and kind of general sense of, of agreement. Yeah, Essex is a bit crap, and then he showed this this stunning film of this incredible landscape. You know, the the wildlife at, <coughs> at Rain and Marshes, the the Broomway, these beautiful, beautiful places, and I think there was this great sense of of surprise. Um, I mean, maybe you can show us more of these. Yes, there aren't Fantastic many. I mean, pictures. I think that one of the reasons is that all these landscapes that I, that Jason and I fo Jason photographed are inaccessible by car. I mean, you've basically got to get out of a car or off your bike, even a bike, which I'm a cyclist. You've got to walk uh, the sea wall or on the beach, and it's hard work at times. But when do you get it? But you know, there, is, there are these fantastic kind of changing landscapes because you've got three elements at work. You've got the land, you've got the sea and the sky, and they're all constantly shifting. Uh, some years ago, I realised I never wanted to walk again where I couldn't see water. Um, that's just, I'm not an inland person. I want that kind of sense of change. And, and often, I mean, Gillian Darvis here we, uh, is another person I regularly walk with. I mean, you can do the same walk a week between times, but going one way and coming back the other way, it is a completely different world, a completely different world. So it's this kind of changeability, this mutability that I think we're, we're kind of trying to understand because, as I say, in an over-determined, rationalised, controlled world, I think these landscapes are posing, you know, both a, a threat, or not a threat, but they are... They are, they're a window out into a new way of thinking mm. about our relationship to the world. Well, exactly. I mean, if we can take this, this idea of the fluid, uh, Rachel, the idea of the marine, and, and the strange kind of uh, doubling that we have at the heart of the culture, we both are profoundly aware as an island nation that we're defined by the sea, and yet we're very little in it, in mm. the water now, particularly in a post-industrial culture, and yet Turner is our national artist and so on. All these strange kind of collisions of position you actually get out into the water um, with your piece and obviously across the, the book as a, as a whole. And I wonder what the relationship is around change because, of course, one of the issues around radical change, and Ken identified very clearly that we're, we're talking about you know, huge shifts in the space of a very few years around our relationship to many of these landscapes and, and the, the labour attached to it. How do we avoid you know, potential issues of sentimentality and nostalgia around what, of course, were very, very difficult environments for mm. lots of people, at the same time as celebrating and marking really significant generational engagements? Well, I think, for me, that was why, after the, that particular barge trip, mainly with a group of artists and musicians, and we were all over, we got, <coughs> you know, immersed in this beautiful landscape, uh, that there was a painter there who spent the whole five days trying to describe... The, the slate colour of the sea in, in many different terms and um, we were all really excited to be in that landscape but it was for me, I wanted very much to then start talking to the people who really knew it mm. and there, there is a sense of love and deep, <laughs> deep romance amongst these, uh, mainly men you know, who spent their working lives on, on the river, you know, fishermen I've spoken to who, who describe themselves as the luckiest people alive, going out at dawn and you know, seeing the sunsets and the, they really love 
that river. But for them, it's very much about the kind of working environment. But I suppose one of the things that struck me after conducting a number of interviews is, is what a wild place it is. I mean, the way they were speaking, it was like talking to um, mountain climbers. You know, when they're out there on the estuary, they're completely dependent on each other for, for, for their lives. I mean, the Tugman uh, was speaking about how they had to work as, as, as a team with, you know, one, one below deck and then one up on the bridge working this telegraph, giving instructions. And if they get it wrong, you know, they, they can die out there. I mean, people do die out there quite often. So it's, um, it's got a bit of the, the wild west about it, really, when you start speaking to the people who, who know it that well. Um, and again, I think the actual kind of coast around Essex, I mean, uh, during Shorelines, Julian Hoffman, um, the writer from Greece, spends a long time exploring the, the, the one of the last world spaces um, on the Kent side, again, of the Hu Peninsula, which is a very contested space at the moment. Uh, potentially, it's the site of the new estuary airport. You know, I've, I've, I've lived looking opposite that for most of my life. Mm. And before Julian invited me to walk with him, I'd never actually been there. Um, and it's, uh, have you been there, Ken? No, no well, I, only, yeah. I cycle once a year now, yeah. because I'll never do again. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, this leads us on to a conversation, yeah. really, which is very important before we open it out, about the relationship between text and image and how we present this material, because some elements of this story clearly could not be presented by image alone and vice versa. We have to see the places that we're thinking about, and we have to hear the voices mm -hmm. of those places. So, Ken, you, you mentioned that Jason doesn't uh, take the, le the lens cap off when you're in the, no. in the room or the field or the march. No. Um, but how do you think about this, this evolving relationship between text and image, between coast and, and water? I mean, is there a relationship there between the harder space of the text and maybe the more fluid space of the image? Well, interestingly, Jason shoots on film only and, and doesn't <coughs> use filters. Um, and uh, never mentioned to Jason, you know, the annual awards for landscape photography. You, if you'd have seen in the garden about four weeks ago there were ten the ten winners of the annual <coughs> landscape photography exhibition and they were truly dreadful I mean they were all shot either with uh, filters or photoshop, they showed pristine bo Scottish borderland areas with crystal lakes sparkling azure blue skies a smattering of fine snow as if mankind had never existed and they were all in that kind of completely idealised mode. And I think, you know, Jason is in a way a pioneer. I mean, Jason is one of the people, along with people like Jem Southam and, and a number of others, who are trying to find a new language for landscape photography, which is part of this move towards creating a discussion about outdoor aesthetics rather than indoor aesthetics. Um, on the other, I mean, but, but where I think there is a kind of another cause for optimism, I mean, Essex has a terrible reputation, completely undeserved. I mean, it has the largest wildlife organisation of all the counties of England, 30,000 members. It's been a pioneer in taking out all the culverts uh, and, and uh, you know, uncanalising a lot of water systems and river systems with... Um, 
and turning, you know, some very indescribably ugly landfill sites. I mean, you know, mucking, rain and marshes, Two Tree Island, uh, Canvey Island, recently called Britain's own rainforest, Canvey Island, Britain's own rainforest. <laughs> uh, it was wild, wildly exotic. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And speak, not found anywhere else. And those activities, I think, are very interesting because we are learning, as I say in, in the book, we're getting very sophisticated at recreating habitat for flora and fauna. We're absolutely disgracefully bad at creating habitat for ourselves. We're still throwing up housing estates that have no connection whatsoever with the landscape within 10, year, ten yards of the ball defence. Um, and, I mean, what I hope is that books like this and, you know, this discussion about place is going, you know, hopefully one day we can get some of the housing developers by the throat. But, we, <coughs> we, you know, we've got to have that discussion now about how we inhabit the landscape. In, in, because we do, will need, we do need new houses. We do need new settlements. We do need new forms of economy in, you know, in Britain, but we're so far advanced on the flora and fauna, and we're so far way back in human settlement. Yeah. Well, you say we, and so this is the we for now, for the next half hour or so. It would be lovely to hear from all or any of you about the issues raised, um, thoughts, experiences, reflections, responses. Um, Roving Mike has woken up, but he's busy. Uh, he's waiting to be busy anyway. Um, if anyone would like to feedback, give us comments on any of the things you've heard and are continuing to see, if there are any thoughts. Yes, thank you. Do, do use the microphone if you could. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering whether um, it's distance from landscape that romanticises it. Um, it seems to me that a lot of late 19th century uh, romantic painting of the agricultural landscape was as a result of the emergence of a, a moneyed middle class um, who could take the benefit from all of that labor because the thing you never see, you, know, you may see um, peasants working in the fields, but it's always at the kind of distance which remo is removed from the intensity and... Uh, heaviness of the labor um, and I th I'm thinking of another kind of uh, distancing that's taken place you've spoken about the uh, attractiveness of this landscape of water which is no longer so much worked on and uh, I'm myself have spent quite a long time photographing transformations of the Olympic landscape of that particular area um, and uh, it's, it's very apparent, uh, to give you an example, apparently if you have a high-rise flat along Stratford High Street, 
if it's next to, to uh, the canal that runs through there, apparently adds £15,000 to the value of a particular flat. And you can be 20 floors up and barely see the water. Um, and I'm very aware that there is that kind of romanticising that's taken place about having something built next to water, even in the centre of a city. And that uh, water system is no longer a working system and it is being romanticised. I mean, I can, I can only b but, uh, but agree with that. Um, I mean, I, it was a, 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 at the same time that the Olympic Park has cleaned up massively the Hackney navigation that runs through it and so on. People report that now the, the condition of the River Lee, you know, up in Tottenham and beyond the north is worth is worse than it's ever been, more polluted than it's ever been before. So what, unfortunately, I'm so sad to say, because I was kind of, well, I, I mean, remain ambivalent about the Olympics. Nevertheless, it was a great success, and I'm glad many people enjoyed it. But it was a bubble. It was an ecological bubble, and a lot was made about how ecological it was going to be and how many thousands of trees they'd planted and how many bird boxes and the return of the <coughs> egret and the return of the, you know, lesser spotted woodpecker and so on. All that's wonderful, but it was a bubble. It is a bubble because immediately outside the perimeter of the Olympic Park, actually, environmental degradation continues apace. Um, but you, 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 have, I mean, you have raised a problem. I mean, it, you know, we're, built, we're, we're kind of turned our face to the water, but we don't have a relationship, and it, it's, not a, it's not a working group. But, I mean, th there have been some very successful... Um, Undeculverting of some of London's rivers. Um, there's a very famous Quaggy, the River Quaggy in South London. Apparently, you know, some very interesting new parklands have been developed as a result of taking the river out of a culvert. And, and, and I think there's more work going on about trying to open up London's historic river, sin, river system that was one, you know, that was then buried. Um, and I, I, again, I hope that people like the Essex Wildlife Trust will continue to bring our attention to the need to have a systems approach, that's a terrible word, to, to uh, the natural world, you know, that it's got to work. Uh, it can't just be there in, in, as a piece of visual spectacular. It, you know, rivers have got to do what they're supposed to do. Um, I mean, historically, of course, uh, the world, if you like, the English imagination has been divine. I mean, I think Yeats once said this. I've never been able to find the quote. But I, I remember it from about 30 years ago and talking to Raphael Samuel about it. But Yeats at one point wrote that the English imagination was divided between the Upper Thames and the Lower Thames. There was the Arcadian wind in the willows, you know, Oxford, hunting, uh, Henley... And then there was the port of London, tugboats, colonialism, uh, waste, fever hospitals, prison ships, quarantine ships. You know, there was this harsh world and divided by the Tower, Tower Bridge. And the notion was that, of course, in lots, as in lots of cities, that it was always better to live upriver because you escaped all the effluents and the, the fumes from the tanning factories and so on. But as I say at the end of the book, that is no, we all live downriver today. I mean, you can't 
escape now. You used to, in the 19th century, you could escape the effects of pollution, um, but now you can't. They're kind of surrounding us. I mean, if we take that, that idea forward, which is a crucial one, of, of the water as the defining element wherever we are, in a sense, uh, we've seen this huge move out of London on the, on the part of many people to, to the coastal towns, to, of, of the South Coast and, and Kent and Essex. It's, it's a much larger movement than one might give credit for initially, but then one realises actually it's, it's, cr it's along the whole coastline of, of the, the kind of greater London... Uh, air area. <laughs> <laughs> Don't talk sideways is the, is the secret, I think, isn't it? Okay, so, Rachel, in my mind I'm looking at you yes. and I'm projecting out. Um, Rachel, you're now out, uh, back on home base, if you like, and I wonder if you, if you could reflect a little bit on, on, on the changed relationship that you've had to that landscape, but also how widely felt you think it is. How conscious are communities of this marine space that comes to their doorstep, effectively? Well, interestingly, the reason that my family ended up in the East End is that my, my father's family were Polish-Jewish migrants. They settled in Brick Lane. <coughs> and after the war, they moved out, like many did, to Westcliff-on-Sea, or what it was known as Whitechapel-on-Sea. And that was, that was the dream. You know, that was, that was the kind of Jewish dream to do that, to move out to the coast, to be by the water. You know, it was a, it was a real... Uh, you'd made it. You'd, uh, a lot of the uh, Jewish diamond dealers I was talking to recently for my last book... Um, talked about as, as young apprentices, all they were doing was <coughs> saving up money to buy, to buy a house on Canvey Island, which you could do in the, in, in the uh, early 50s for £300. You know, so it was the kind of immigrant dream, in a sense, to move to be by the coast. And, I and I, I've seen it in the, in the last 10 years since I've been back in Essex. Lots of uh, young Bengali families, kind of day-trippers, again, doing the same thing that the Jewish community did before them, and they're starting to move there. Mm -hmm. But then there's also a, a, a very different community, obviously, of a kind of asylum seekers and refugees who are coming to places like Southend and Margate and Ramsgate and other places like that. Um, and, and inhabiting those seaside towns because they're made to. Um, and that's a different dynamic. But they're starting to become... You know, these very um, cross-cultural places, you know, places like uh, areas around Brick Lane and Spitalfields, which for, you know, centuries were, were the first port of call for, for new immigrants coming into this country. That's never going to happen again. It's, it's just too expensive to live there. So they're moving out to the coastal towns, and um, it's, it's, <coughs> it's changing the dynamic of these places in a really exciting way. And then, of course, lots of artists are moving out for the very same reasons. You know, all the studios that have gone because of the Olympic development, for example, they're moving to places like Ramsgate and South End. So, um, and because of that, I think you've got a, a kind of fresh eye, a fresh look on those places, and people are starting to explore the landscape in, in a different way. Thank you. And of course, anyone who's been uh, even vaguely in contact with the media over the last 24 hours will know the darker side of the story around immigrant and migrant communities particularly in coastal towns, from some of the pronouncements by our esteemed leader. But um, this is obviously a very important project politically in light of that. 
um, because, of course, we need to tell other stories, don't we, about what the estuary means, what the coastal towns mean, what these hybrid landscapes mean for future forms of belonging and shared identity, Ken. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a crucially political as well as an aesthetic project, isn't it? Yes, I mean, uh, Essex has been a complete kind of um, homeland for all kinds of experimental communities in the last 150 years. Uh, I mean, I grew up in Hadley, after Canvey we moved to Hadley, where there was a very large Salvation Army colony there, uh, <coughs> which, uh, which was origi- 1892, initially to provide meaningful labour and to rescue drunken men from Brick Lane and the East End of London. And they did probably a pretty good job. Um, and when I was growing up there, um, we used to go down there as ch- you know, young teenagers, you know, they then had then become a, what they call a, uh, a juvenile delinquents. But it's still a farm. It's now farmed as an organic farm, and it's a training school for young people with learning difficulties. And there's a fantastic restaurant there, and it has still some quite, I mean, even if religious, I mean, well, even if religious, it has some utopian elements to it. Well, they're not contradictory, I hope. Um, but because partly proximity London, partly because uh, land was relatively cheap, and all sorts of Tolstoyan, anarchist, uh, and social, municipal socialist colonies were set up all around Essex. And in Second World War, even, I mean, I interviewed a number of women who were pacifists, who'd run farms around Colchester, uh, with visitors like Orwell and Middleton Murray, and Shirley Williams herself uh, grew up on one of these um, pacifist farms. Um, and, you know, even more recently, I, you know, whenever we walk in Essex, we're always finding people running small holdings or setting up organic farms. I mean, that relationship to the land, I think, is still, it's still a kind of a utopian dream for some people who want to live a different life now rather than in the future um, which is why I'm so interested in the notion of whether we can bring the skills we've developed in terms of the habitats of the flora and fauna to creating new settlement habitats which have a social and economic as well as an environmental kind of rationale it's slow but I think you know those ideas are coming through but unless you have the history people forget that you know, this has always been the last two hundred years. People have been leaving London to try to change, you know, to build a different life. Often around issues to do with cultivating the land, uh, living more frugally, more mutually, and so that kind of thing goes on. Thank you very much. Yes, sorry to delay in the questions. Um, yes, please, gentleman at the back, and then we'll we'll come here as well. Thank you. I wonder if I could invite Ken just to um, say a little bit about the sequence of photographs that are showing. Oh, right. I'm particularly curious about one where the path seems to disappear into the scene. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, there, are only, there are 22 photographs by Jason in the book, and I think I've got six here. Um, we spent three nights on Horsey Island, which is in um, the Walton backwaters near Walton on the Nays. And that is the, the road you take out to it. Um, uh, and uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty scary, I have to say, because strangely the causeway unusually is below the level of the mud. So 
we were driving along and we had oyster catchers at eye level looking out the windows, on <laughs> car windows on both sides. Um, it's a bit like how it feels tonight. Yes. I, I, I'm, I'm slightly kind of anxious because I, I sent a copy of the book yesterday to the man who owns Horsey Island and he may think we have not showed it in its best light. Um, but it is it's just a fantastic... I mean, it, it is a private island, but he does get money, I think, from National Trust. He, he, it is uh, very rich in bird life. And there are occasions when visitors can go there, but not very often. So that's the causeway to Horsey Island. Um, that's Horsey Island. Um, and... There's a, there's a paragraph in the book where I describe what an organic farm looks like. I mean, everything on this farm has been made from something else. Everything. I mean, car tyres, petrol cans, rubber hose pipe, children's bicycle wheels. Everything is reused. Now, it's not particularly pretty, <coughs> but if you, if you want kind of recycling, mm. then uh, this is the place to go. I mean, all the fences are made out of fences that broke down somewhere else and then were re-set uh, up somewhere else. Um, and that is a, a boat under wraps on Horsey Island. Um, it has a kind of static quality. There's a section in the book which is quite difficult to explain kind of in a, in a session like this, but there's, there's, there's a new kind of bit of work going on in the field of aesthetics about how you record absence, how you rep represent something that isn't there. Because one thing, that, a criticism that stung me in the first book I did with Jason was from someone who said, well, Ken, you're a socialist. Where are all the people in these photographs? You know, you thought you were all about the people. Um, I said, well, you know, they were there, but they're not there anymore. But there are, there are evidence of their, um, you know, the places they created, the, you know, fantastic. I mean, Maidensea, there, is, there are the ruins of a once fantastic kind of Tolstoyan community. The railway lines where they took the goods, that they, all, the, the, all the glass houses and so on. Um, so, we, you know, we're trying to, in these kind of little incidents of kind of human presence, we're trying to record that people have been here before. And it's a, a very difficult thing to do. Um, and this constant kind of battle with the sea. Horsey Island went completely under during the 1953 floods, which is why you have all these sunken barges filled with concrete um, around the northeastern uh, spit or, of the island to stop the sand leaching away. Um, and actually you'll find these similar collections of uh, empty tugs and barges, London barges actually, around um, Bradwell, protecting the coastline. And this, which I think is amazing, this photograph, which it could be Dutch or Indonesian, but it's actually Bentley-on-Sea, um, 35 minutes from, um, from Fenchurch Street Station. Uh, but the colour the colour palette is for me terrific. Um, and I was so pleased when we... Uh, this is a book that we published ourselves, Jason and I, and we, the book designers here, Peter Braun. Um, 
and we had to choose a colour for the cover. Now, my, we both thought, well, not green, because that's going to be that's going to be um, assumed, be conventional. And then Peter got out the Pantone swatches, and there were, you know, 276 greens. And it was very interesting. We spent out, I mean, there was one, only one, if, in the, of the 276, there was clearly only one green, that, and it worked. But, but thank goodness. Um, but there is a kind of green that runs through the book that was really, I don't know whether it was a happy coincidence, but it, do, it did take me back to another section of the book, which is about what British, particularly English artists after the war, what they, their colour palette changed. They were using, uh, they, were, they were looking at a completely different colour range for a landscape that they thought was in tune with the mood music or the times, the, you know, post-war times. And so I think this kind of colour range is, is really very important aesthetically. Um, and as I say, there are no filters, nothing has been used. They are, they're all taken on film. Very good. Thank you very much. We've got a, a question here, and then we'll, we'll go to a question. And then, yeah, two there, please. Thank you. Just, just here. That's great. Thanks very much. Um, this seems like a completely wonderful project, and, and thanks for thanks for your talk. Um, I'm saying that because I'm going to make a slightly uncharitable comparison uh, between <laughs> between these photographs and the sort of photographs that come out of the urban exploration and the photographs of sort of desolate urban landscapes um, and the sort of documenting of post-industrial. Britain, because um, I, I wonder if there's a risk of the sort of aestheticization of that post-industrial landscape that raises a question of who this re-enchantment or, or sort of return to the landscape or, or whatever it is for, um, especially in the light of the fact that you know there are, there are a number of sort of fairly well-documented cases of, of, of seaside towns where where people are. There's a, people are feeling like there's a process of gentrification or whatever that's going on and, and people are not being allowed to live in, in the places where they once worked. Um, I wondered if, if you could reflect on that. I'm very pleased. Um, because I, I think what... You know, um, Patrick Keeler, in his new book, The View from the Train, has a short essay on the poetics of dilapidation. And I think this is a danger uh, that we're all aware of, the aestheticization of uh, decay uh, and I felt very uncomfortable I mean there, there was a book about photographs of, it, of interiors of abandoned mental hospitals in America which did actually aestheticise them when you thought God you know what had gone on there and I think this is, is an, you're right to raise it it's an ever present danger um, I'm glad you didn't raise it when Jason was here um, <laughs> he might not go out of the room I mean uh, we are, we, it's something we talk about all the time, and Jason is very conscious that, uh, you know, not more misery photography, not, you know, he's very, you know, we are trying to be as truthful as possible, but I, I, I do completely take that, and that's part of this debate I'm calling for about aesthetics, that that is an element in it, that there, there is a kind of abroad, as it were, uh, a kind of school of photography that is aestheticizing poverty. But that's not new. I mean, um, you know, 
what, what's the French phrase? You know, the, the gutter, the, um, the, the uh, I'll think about it in a minute. I'll think about mm. it. But I mean, back to Baudelaire. I mean, there's a mm. kind of long tradition of kind of aestheticizing the lower, you know, the, the gutter and the, you know, the um, mm. the mud, the life in the mud. Nostal nostalgie de la boue, mm. nostalgia for the mud, uh, or the lower depths. So you're, it is, I think, absolutely right to raise it. Can I just add to that? Mm. I, mean, I think there is, there's obviously a danger with it, and, and I'm very aware of it, which is, you know, why I've kind of gone back in to, to record these working lives and the stories of people who are actually kind of very deeply connected <coughs> to that place. But I also feel that, you know, this this kind of photography and films like Robert McFarlane's The Well Places of Essex are so crucial because they're, they're helping the people that live in these places kind of see them anew. And, and learn about the landscape where they live and, and appreciate it. You know, I, I speak from the perspective of being an Essex girl and someone who, you know, went off to university and was like, yeah, I'm from Essex. You know, very, very quiet about it because I'm just sick of all the, 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 the constant jokes. It's such a derided county. And there is a, 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 a sense from people who live there as well that they're not proud of the place where they live. And I think this type of work really helps not just others outside of that position but the people who live there to f fall back in love with it and of course all of these landscapes are such contested places at the moment you know with, with the threats of the Thames Estuary airport and what's happening with the container port and I think you make some really important points in the book about attachment to place, and if you don't know it, and you don't understand it, and if you mm. don't fall in love with it, how can you even begin to start to protect it? Thank you all very much. Yeah, we'll just take these two questions here, and, and then I think... Just, just there. Yeah, thank you. And then I wonder if you could, for anyone unfortunate enough to live in the Cotswolds, <laughs> uh, what, what should you do if you live in the Cotswolds, as, as far as you're concerned? <laughs> Move to Essex. I tried. Um, well, imagine if you, it, it, those who live in the Cotswolds, if 20 feet of water came in twice a day to where they lived. I mean, it, it's a completely. Now, I'm not saying it's not a bad experience, but it's a completely different experience living in a very strong tidal area. I mean, I didn't know until, you know, I, I remember it never occurred to me the first time I went to the Mediterranean that it wasn't tidal. And I remember going to Denmark uh, for a holiday and uh, you know, on the Baltic of course and there was a little wooden strip along the edge of the beach and, and the water never came over I mean the tide was probably three or four inches I mean we've got tides of you know six seven meters uh, if you live on Mer Horsey Island or if you live on Mersey Island or you live on Can Lesko Canvey because it's got a road system not a causeway but it's a completely different experience and I'm, I'm not valorizing one against the other, but I'm saying why I think these these coastal landscapes are gaining importance <coughs> is because they are they're cons they're conscious of this element that is actually uncontrollable. And if, once you do start walking um, the coastline, uh, you do become aware that you can actually. It's not that difficult to be sitting having your sandwiches, you know, talking, and find you're surrounded by water. And you don't, you know, and then you've got to scramble for safety. Um, 
it's it's I think why we're trying to kind of point out why this this coastal Essex landscape is a kind of a new it's a kind of force field for a different way of thinking about the land and Englishness is because it is very condensed form of all these dangers of industri post industrialization of lack of work of a vulnerable kind of to water landscape um, but it also is a place where I think a new aesthetic has been um, you know, developed I hope Thank you uh, Gentleman here um, Gareth Evans you asked a question early on in your uh, words uh, about why was it that the landscape of Essex, the beauty of the landscape of Essex, had in a sense been disappeared? Why we devalue, why we've come, we for so long devalued that. I am an architect and I've worked, although I've lived all my life in Cam my adult life in Camden, I have my t I've had my toe in the water in Essex for a long time because worked in Basildon uh, doing housing uh, until housing disappeared. Um, uh, did the DLR in bit from Poplar to Beckton. And again, Beckton is on the edge of the city where you begin to sense that Essex is out there. And knowing Basildon 10 years before, I knew what that meant, that there's a northeasterly blowing and you know it. Um, and then more recently chairing the design review panel in Newham. Again, the same sort of sense of there being the edge. Now, what came to my mind, and I just want to I'll be very quick if I can, uh, what came to my mind about your question was whether, whether the presence of the docks, that enormously powerful working class community focused on the docks in Newham and elsewhere, and then the enormous trauma of the absence of the docks and what that means in terms of the green and pleasant land image of Londoners in relation to Essex, which is a tough place in any case. You know, the northeasterly and, and the muted, those colors are something else. And they're great, but they are something else. And so I just wonder whether there's a political dimension uh, to your, or behind your question, or as a possible discussion in relation to your question, about the presence of the working class communities and the absence of the working class communities and what that has meant in terms of our recognition of where Essex is. Well, thank you. I mean, certainly I'm, I'm not in a position to, to answer that. There was a question to, you know, to start this discussion, but it's absolutely crucial, I think, because, Ken, what you do in the book is very clearly identify uh, very near the beginning this idea of the porous borders between London and Essex straight away. And, of course, Rachel, you've taken on this idea of community movements out. So this seems to me a very good place, a very productive place to sort of think about closing formally. But I wonder if you could both respond in your own way to this sense of what, what it means to be London and Essex and where they meet and where the differences lie as well. Well, uh, um my trajectory is almost the same as Rachel's, as is my wife, who's here tonight. I mean, my <coughs> father came from Stratford, my mother came from Marland. They met, uh, married at, um, at Marland. 
uh, and after the war went out to Canby and then, and then to Southend. I went to Southend High School for boys, that's what my brother did, and then I met my wife in the Southend Folk Club. Her family were Jewish, they'd come from the East End, they went out to Westcliff. And then we married and then came back to London, came back to Hackney, where we've been for the last 40 years. I think this, mo you know, this, th there's a kind of turn and throwing between London and its metropolitan values and some of its kind of, you know, vivacity or intellectual vivacity and actually Essex, which is quite very interesting. Um, and I, I loathe this idea that Essex is some kind of benighted county. In the, at the end of the 1990s, I did a lot of work in public policy on the future of the library service. And I think in 1998, looking at the LISU, librarians uh, in the room, the Library and Information Statistics Unit at Loughborough University, they did all their figures for all the library systems in the UK. The busiest three libraries in all of the UK were all in Essex. Southend, Chelmsford and Colchester. So, and I know that, you know, I was talking about the, the, the thing we did with... Um, Jermaine Greer and Simon Heffer. I mean, the phenomenal appetite in Colchester or in Chelmsford when we do events about the landscape and history is, is tremendous. And I think, you know, there is a lot of respect for that history. But I think class is a, diff is, is a much more difficult concept to talk about than when, you know, 40 years ago. Obviously, I happen to believe it's still there underneath the surface. But I think, actually, there's still quite a lot of dialogue going on between what you might call London values and Essex values, around uh, across a whole range of these issues, mm. whether it's environmentalism, whether it's the future economy of the river, you know, whether it's around the quality of housing settlements and so on. I think it's quite a dynamic relationship. Mm. Thank you. Rachel, would you like to? Not really. No, I think that's fine. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a question which I could ask you both uh, before we close, which is about the relationship to Europe. Again, we're talking about contested sites in lots of ways in terms of aesthetics, in terms of social organisation, economy and so on, and to do with migration, of course, increasingly. And you've both mentioned European connections, whether family or cultural, in terms of the Sabaldian project, very much reminding us of links to mainland Europe. And I wonder if these discussions and debates are happening and are productively uh, necessary for us to know about on the other side of the water, Holland, Germany, and so on, and, and how we should think about what conclusions they might be coming to around similar landscapes and how that might impact on our, our sense of thinking here. Ken, do you have any sense of that? Well, I mean, in, in a, a practical sense, I mean, if those who are involved in landscape architecture will know that the last 20 or 30 years, uh, Dutch landscape architects particularly, uh, and Germans to a lesser extent, but Germans certainly, in, well, they're Swiss in connection with the, the work at Doisburg, um, the former Ruhr Valley industrial area, which was completely re-landscaped, but retaining all the old industrial infrastructure. Fantastic project. But actually, they're much more advanced in understanding how you have to integrate the remains of industry in a new landscape. Whereas in the book I quote um, a, a vicar, <coughs> from, actually not from one of the Nottingham colleagues, uh, who, whose, whose parish was in Nottingham, his father was a miner, and he went looking for the records uh, of the colliery, it was actually um, where his father worked, and they was, yeah, they, 
because the, the site had been levelled, they were, it were told that all the documents relating to the colliery had been thrown into the empty mine shaft first before the concrete was poured in. Absolute, absolute erasure of the past. Um, absolutely appalling. Um, and I think that the Dutch and the Germans are just way ahead of thinking about how you integrate kind of anti-flood structures, uh, industrial structures in the landscape to make a meaningful kind of setting. Whereas we're still, I think, got the anchor of the picturesque dragging us down and this kind of reversion to uh, a kind of the English gardening tradition, which was very strong and is still very powerful around the world, but we haven't developed a kind of cognate public <coughs> landscape art. I mean, there's not, I mean, um, there, there has been some work on that, um, but uh, I'm trying to think of the Jeffrey Jellico uh, and some industrial works that he designed with Gertrude Jekyll uh, in the 50s and 60s were very successful, but nevertheless, our general public landscape architectural profession and tradition is woefully behind the times. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I think what's very clear, of course, from uh, both Rachel and Ken's comments uh, this evening is how critical it is to, to remember the dialogue between personal lives meeting public space. And, of course, it's that meeting that turns space into place. And, and both Rachel and Ken, uh, throughout their working lives have, have explored that in all sorts of crucial ways and this is uh, a, a very very important and valuable um, addition to that ongoing dialogue in many different arenas. Um, Ken uh, as modestly as ever of course uh, described his essay as being 18,000 words long which is factually correct but it speaks volumes um, to the issues and conditions that we have been exploring and is a, a key document I think uh, its title suggests its importance um, and one that will be referenced and referred to um, for a long time to come in thinking about how we shape these debates. Similarly, Rachel's book, Estuary, will be forthcoming in 2015. Uh, before we thank them, um, I would like to draw your attention, of course, to the fact that, uh, as I'm sure you all know, the London Review Bookshop has December late openings. They are on the 4th, the 11th, and the 19th of December, uh, where 10% uh, is coming your way, 10% off uh, everything you purchase Fourth, eleventh, and Three days sometime. Just come in and say it's today and demand 10% off. But if you come on the, the actual days, whatever they might be, um, you will uh, find a, a culinary activity that will make Glenn Gould, were he with us now, uh, yellow with envy, where the cafe in the bookshop will be playing a series of mustard variations um, that will come out of that doorway there and find their way among the stacks... Um, what they exactly will entail, I don't know, but that's what the notes here say. It's, <laughs> it's muster variations in December. Um, as always, of course, many thanks to everyone here at the bookshop for making this a great space both to find books in and also to find and hear discussion of the ideas those books contain. Thanks to everyone here. Thank you very much indeed for coming, but please do join me before you buy their books and have them signed. Please do join me uh, in, in thanking for their books and their conversation and their images tonight. Ken Walpole and Rachel Lichtenstein. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.